Let's read verse 7 through verse 17, or I'm sorry, through verse 21, and uh, let's pray after we do that. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against you, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. That's clear as mud, right? Let's pray and ask God to be with us. Father, we love you and we are thankful for your word. And each letter on every page is breathed out by you. And we need every word, every cross T, every dotted I. Put it in us, Lord Jesus. Uh, Build us up into the people of God that you are making us. We ask this thankful for the privilege to ask, but we ask this in your name, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, matchless one. Thank you. In Jesus' name, every Christian said, amen. A vision of the horseman. Now, as you can see, this week's a little different from last week. Last week, the first six verses of Zechariah, pretty straightforward, just common didactic, imperative language, statements being made. God says, return to me and I will return to you. God wants relationship with his people. But from verse 7 through verse 21, we see the first two visions out of eight visions that God gives Zechariah at night. 
He doesn't give them during the daytime. What does the day represent? When the sun comes up in the morning, right, it represents joy, new day, new opportunities. Uh, light is shining. We can see. He gives these visions at night. What does night represent? Night represents the dark. Night represents despair. Night represents anxiety. Will the sun come up tomorrow? Uh, and, and we think the context seems to suggest. Now, he could have received each of these visions on a different night. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But context seems to say all eight visions were given to him in one night in, uh, in succinct fashion. So, and these are different in that they are written in what we call apocalyptic language. It's apocalyptic literature, right? Apocalyptic literature is known. It's not just straight out didactic statements. It is full of sometimes bizarre imagery, a lot of symbolism in apocalyptic language. And here's what that means. It means we have to approach apocalyptic literature. We have to approach uh, these eight visions of Zechariah the same way we approach Revelation and other apocalyptic uh, literature in the Bible, like Daniel. Uh, some, there's some apocalyptic literature in Daniel. We've got to approach this with incredible humility, right? Put, put, put our verse up for us, uh, brother. Remember, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Uh, we've got to be humble when we come to this. And we also have to remember the context of the entirety of the Old Testament, which, by the way, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. The Old Testament has been fulfilled in the first advent of Christ. Uh, it, it would be very easy for us. And look, there is a lot of application in the book of Zechariah that we can make towards the second coming of Christ. Certainly, there's a lot. Did you know that Zechariah is the, is the most, has the most messianic prophecies in it of any other book in the Old Testament other than the Psalms? Zechariah, I can't remember how many times, Zechariah is quoted dozens of times in the uh, New Testament. The, as the Bible uh, uh, authors look at Zechariah and see how Christ fulfilled the things. These are people downcast back in Jerusalem. They've started building, but they've stopped because it just doesn't seem like it's going to be as good as it used to be. And God is encouraging them to look forward to that first coming of Christ. They're awaiting Messiah. They're awaiting the first coming. They're looking for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come the first time. It's important to remember that as we study this at some points very different. Now, these eight visions are going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. We're going we're gonna to move through them. When we get to chapter 10 through 14, it really becomes a, a lot more difficult. Remember, chapter 14 is when Martin Luther put his pen down and said, uh, and here I come to the end. I have no idea what the prophet is talking about. Martin Luther wrote that in his Zechariah commentary. Right, so it's going to get more difficult, but today we're going to start out pretty easy. Two, two easy visions that we can interpret and get lots of application from. But remember, there's only one interpretation for every chapter of Scripture, every verse of Scripture. There is a right way to interpret it, and there's hundreds of ways to get application from it as God uses his word to build us up. Let's begin. On the 24th day of the 11 months, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, 
Now, I love these time stamps. We know exactly when these visions come to Zechariah. And here's the date, February 15th. 519 B.C., about 500 years before the Messiah comes, right? That first Messianic prophecy found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, ye shall bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. That's a Messianic prophecy about the, the work that Jesus Christ was going to do. Did the serpent bruise the heel of Christ? yes. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Remember, in the garden, he prayed, take this cup from me. I don't want the beard pulled out of my head. I don't want lacerations uh, through my back from the the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, I don't want to be nailed to a cross. In human flesh, Jesus experienced pain that we experience. It's why he can be a good high priest and and serpent. Satan tried to destroy Jesus. He tried to use the cross to destroy, but God used the cross for good and Jesus Christ did crush the head of the serpent and and here these visions are reflecting the the first coming of Christ February 15th look today's the 18th right this is almost 2500 years ago to the day maybe I'm just a nerd I don't know I think that's awesome I mean we are almost 2500 years to the day Reading God, speaking to his people to encourage them and pull them out of despair. Lift up your eyes. See where your help comes from this morning. When you're looking around out here, it's always going to be discouraging. That's why we look up to the heavens through God's word and we see what he is doing through his sovereign will in the hearts and lives of men and women, in the hearts and lives of his people, his church now in the New Testament. God is still at work just like he was 2,500 years ago. In the second year of the reign of Darius, now, you got to be careful with Darius because there's three of them in, in the Persian Empire. Uh, the third, Darius III, will be conquered by Alexander the Great in just a couple hundred years. But this is the first Darius. Do you know who Darius' first son was? His name is Xerxes. And every man just clenched your abs together, right? Because we know who Xerxes is. We know the Battle of Thermopylae is 40 years from this time. That's when the, the brave 300 Greek state soldiers, most of them from Sparta, led by Leonidas, held off the entire Persian army. This is history, guys. This isn't made up. This isn't myth. This is God speaking to his people in a very real time in history. I love it. So awesome. We know who Darius is. We know who Persia is. And we know that God uses Persia to bring his people home. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And we know who these guys are. These guys are all part of a priestly, prophetic family. God's been using this family for generations to speak into the life of uh, his people. We know Edo served Solomon and served Rehoboam and served uh, Abijah, uh, the sons of Solomon and Rehoboam. Right? He was a prophet that God used during that time. We know the Bible tells us that. 
So this is a, a, a ministering family that's been in ministry for a long time. And Zechariah is just the latest of this family lineage for, that, that God would use to encourage his people. I saw in the night, not during the day, but in the night, I saw, behold, a man riding a red horse. So he looks out. There's a guy on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees. That's not a, that's not, uh, what do you, what do you call it? It's not a contradiction, right? He's, he's, his horse is standing. He's on the horse. He's outside of this, uh, myr- these myrtle trees. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, which means ravine or valley. And behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Right, so get this scene in your mind, right? It's at night, and God gives this vision, and he sees this Calvary in this glen, in this, in this valley. Most scholars say this is probably the Kidron, because they're in Jerusalem. This is probably the Kidron Valley. If you look at the map in the back of your Bible, you'll see that just behind the Temple Mount, which is referred to as Zion here in the text. Anytime you see Zion, you're thinking where the temple goes on the high place in the city of Jerusalem. The ancient world built all their temples. All nations built their temples on the highest place in the city, because in the ancient mind, to be higher into the heavens is to be closer to God. So that's where they put their temples, their Asherah poles, their places of prayer, their places of sacrifice. And God's people were no different. They chose the highest pinnacle in Jerusalem to build the Temple Mount. God told them to do it that way. But right behind the temple, you'll see the Kidron Valley, a valley that dips and then comes up on the other side is the Mount of Olives. So most scholars say this is, this is the Kidron Valley here, but we don't know for sure. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. But we think. Right? And and here's the scene. We know there's riders on all these other horses because they're going out and they're bringing back reports to the man who's riding on the red horse. So here's the scene. you got someone out front who's clearly in charge. And then you've got all these other horses and horsemen uh, in the myrtle trees in the middle of this ravine. Now, myrtle trees are, right, we're we're talking desert landscape. You've all seen pictures of the Middle East. There's very few lush green places, right? you got to get around the rivers. If you've ever seen the the delta at the end of the Nile River uh, and just all the greenery and the lushness around where where water brings life in the desert. But but if there's no water, there's no life, everything's dry. Everything is, is sand, But there's myrtle trees that will grow in this climate. And myrtle trees are evergreens. Their leaves never fall off. And they're these huge, big bushes. They're like bushes. So you got this Calvary riding around, hiding itself in the cover that the Kidron Valley or whatever valley they're in provides for them. This means evergreens, right, even in the winter, even in the summer, Right, Uh, this Calvary is hidden from sight. But Zechariah has a vantage point where he can can see, even though they're in the myrtle trees, there's, there's a Calvary, a large number of horses and horsemen, and they're red, and they're sorrel, and they're white. Sorrel means uh, a paler color, a light, a light brown, even yellow, uh, even gold. Right now, every commentary I've read says, do not try to assign meaning to the colors. That's not the purpose here. But if you wanted to, right? 
There's one place in scripture that talks about horses, all right? And this red horse is not red. This is not the horse of a different color from, right, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Red means chestnut, that, that reddish brown. Right, there's one place in Bible where we're told uh, the color of four horses and, and, and what they mean. And the white horse from Revelation chapter 6 is one who is sent out to conquer and is conquering. That's why Jesus, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus is the one who rides that last white horse out of heaven, right? And he's coming with fire in his eyes and a robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth and all his enemies will be defeated on that day and we will live forever in triumph, in his triumph, amen? That's who Jesus is. He's the guy who gets to ride the white horse. He conquers Satan, sin, death, and hell. He already has, and we'll see it, though, at his second coming. So the white horse is, is a coming to conquer, right? Red horse is one who takes peace from the earth, right? We see in this report the world is at rest. Well, the red rider's going to take care of that. <laughs> and then you've got the, the pale horse, the lighter color horse, which represents death. You don't have to assign those here. It's really not the purpose of this vision. But if you wanted to, use your Bible to do it. So here's the, here's the scene. And remember what a cavalry is in the ancient world. Everybody had armies, but not everybody had a cavalry. Calvary, calvaries can mow down large numbers of people. Uh, a king with a large cavalry, uh, it represents prestige of that king. It represents power of that king. God's got, he's called the Lord of hosts for a reason, amen? And this is his cavalry, just like he owns all things. This is his cavalry, and they're on mission. There's a purpose. Please remember, God is still at work today, right? Hidden away behind the mergers. We can't always see what God's doing, but God is at work. In Hebrews uh, 1, verse 12, verse 14, somewhere around there, he sends out ministering spirits all over to help his people, to encourage his people, to help them lift up their heads. This is what God does in the world and Zechariah is one of those lucky guys who gets a vision, gets to see what most of us can't see. He sees these riders. Verse 9, and then I said, what are these, my Lord? And I love Zechariah. Don't you identify with Zechariah so much? You're going to see him. God has to give a special angel to stand beside him. Angel means messenger, but this is probably a supernatural angel standing beside him. Because everything Zacharias sees, he doesn't understand any of it. Praise God. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. I'm telling you, ladies, you Etsy ladies, I want it on hats. I want it on shirts. I want it on coffee mugs. I want it on sweet tea glasses. I'll buy it all. Put it on belts. I'll buy one. That's my new life first. <laughs> Every meeting I sit in, I just shake my head. When people are done talking, I go, every man is stupid and without knowledge, including me. <laughs> I saw in that, oh, verse 9. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? Zechariah has no idea what God is showing him. How many of you, you read in your Bible, you feel just like Zechariah. Lord, help me. Send your Holy Spirit. I need a messenger. I need somebody. I can ask questions. What are these, my Lord? 
And the angel who talked with me, and we'll see this angel work as Zachariah's interpreter, right? answers his questions in seven of these eight visions. This angel is there with him. What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who is standing among the myrtle trees, this is the man on the red horse. So the man who is standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Right? Every king. This is the day before cell phones. Right? If somebody sees an army coming 20 miles from the east of the city, they have to get on a horse and ride to tell someone. They can't just call. And every king had administrative systems that used horsemen. This is how communication happens. They would be stationed all over the kingdom. And and when a a city was being raided or when a riot had broken out in a city or if an army was marching uh, towards the city, uh, they would use these horsemen to communicate. God has an administrative system as well. He has horsemen all over the place just patrolling, just seeing how things are going and communicating. This is a representation of the omniscience and the omnipresence of Yahweh creator God who Abraham Kuyper famously said there's not one square inch of planet earth in which God does not say mine he is the Lord of hosts he owns it all and he is in complete control over it and nothing happens that misses his eye right The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro over all the earth, right? He misses nothing. This is a picture of an administrative system that, that God has set up. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord. Now underline that, angel of the Lord. This man on this red horse is now referred to as the angel of the Lord. Listen, here's what you need to understand. Jesus Christ, before his first advent, made a couple pre-cameo appearances in the Old Testament. Isn't that awesome? Jesus kind of shows up a couple times in the Old Testament. It's like, here I am. Right? The angel of the Lord. We know the angel of the Lord when we study Judges. The angel of the Lord speaks. As if he is Yahweh. He doesn't say, here we we see him kind of given some reports. But in Judges we see the angel of the Lord speaking as if he is God himself. And we know Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Remember the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. And he's like, hey, we threw in three. Why do I see four? And one looks like the Son of God. Jesus shows up with his people in the fiery furnace. Amen? And here is what we call it is a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate cameo appearance. Because Jesus is the one who leads the army. Amen? He is the angel of the Lord. Then answered the angel of the Lord. And you're going to love this when we get to verse uh, 12. What the angel of the Lord says. It's so Jesus. The angel of the Lord was standing among the myrtle trees and said... We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Which that sounds like a good thing, right? One thing Persia did for the world, as they conquered all the surrounding nations, Persia was this huge, 
right? It's so crazy when Alexander the Great comes on the scene in a couple hundred years as a young man from little Macedon in Greece, just, just from a, a no place nowhere, this, this little prince takes on the entire Persian army. It's crazy and wins. Persia was huge and Persia had brought peace and rest to the world. And it was Persia that God used to send his people back to the city to rebuild the temple, to worship God once more the way that God had commanded them to worship. But this is not a good thing at all. The whole world's at rest. The whole world's at peace. Nothing to report. Then the angel of the Lord said this, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh God, over all, all belongs to you. Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Brent, why would you say that's so Jesus? Because that's what Jesus is doing right now. Where is Jesus right now? He is in session. That's a theological terminology for the session of Christ. He is standing at the right hand of the Father, praying and pleading with the Father on our behalf, on the, the behalf of his people. He is in intercession for you right now. He is calling out your name to the Father. When you blow it, when you mess up, when you fall down and God gets his bag of lightning bolts out, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. My blood covers them. They are made clean. The wrath of God rightly deserved passes over them because I have atoned for their sins. This is the work of Christ right now. It's the reason we're all still breathing today, amen? Right? It's the reason we're experiencing what we shouldn't experience. Grace, mercy of God, it's all due to the life, death, burial, resurrection, and session of Jesus Christ right now. Jesus says, how long? 70 years, which by the way, Psalms 70 years is kind of this typology of the full lifetime of a man. A whole lifetime. But it was also the, the amount of years that God's people spent in exile due to their idolatry and due to their sin. Jesus, how long? Can't you just see Jesus in heaven just, just waiting for the Father to give the word so that he can ride that white horse down? And we've been saved, we're being saved, but at that time, we will be saved, amen? Forever. I'm getting a lot happier than I was in first service. It's a better sermon, you're welcome. How long? Well, you have no mercy, right? Grace is we get what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? We deserve death and hell, but God has given mercy. Jesus came all the way to give us the mercy of God. And in that mercy, we also get what we don't deserve, grace. But Jesus is ready to go. How long? Let's go. Verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. God encourages his people. Three big things he says right here. Starting in verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. And God speaks his word to his people and his people would stay in their despair if it weren't for the words of Christ. If it weren't for the words that come from God's mouth. You and I today still blessed by it. 2,500 years ago, still blessed by it. Everything God says is true. Everything God says is good. Everything God says is worthy of study. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, where my temple resides, where I, my presence is with my people. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. So kind of two things in this first statement of the Lord of hosts to his people through Zechariah. The first, I am jealous for my people. Right now, look, Jesus isn't some 13-year-old middle school girl jealous over a boy. Right? This is a righteous. This isn't jealousy as in sin. This is a righteous jealousy. And here's what you need to remember, each and every one of you. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. There's no way God can love me. God loves you. God wants to be with you. God has always been jealous for his people. That's a jealousy, a righteous jealousy. He's not going to share his people with any lesser thing. That's why the first three of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with him and not letting anything else get in the way. Have no other gods before me. God's not going to share with a lesser being, with a lesser thing, with an unreal thing. God wants every little bit of you. Wants every little bit. Can you see the heart of God, the longing of God for you? He's always longed for his people. He longed for Israel through 39 books in the Old Testament. He longs for his church, his bride. Jesus is giving, he has given his life for his bride. He wants her forever. He's jealous for her. As a righteous man should be jealous for his wife. His eyes are for her and her alone. And we are the bride of Christ. Can you see how this downtrodden people hearing the message of these visions would begin to lift up their heads as their God pronounces this, this love song over them. I want you. Way better than any Bon Jovi song I've ever heard. Right? I want you. You're my people. I'm your return to me and I will return to you. God wants relationship. He always has. He says, I'm jealous over my people. And I'm jealous, right, for Zion. I want my house built, that my presence could be amongst my people once more. And then he says, I'm angry with the nations. God used the wickedness of the nations. God uses the actions of the wicked. He always does. Remember Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said, you meant for evil, but God meant for good. But here God says, nations, the report is everything's at ease. 
God says, nope, that's not going to happen. I'm going to bring unrest to those who are at ease because the nations, they, I use them to discipline my people, but they've gone too far. And now I'm going to step in and I'm going to uh, make the crooked paths straight once more. God is at work right now in your life. Brent, I just don't think so. Right? Just because he's silent doesn't mean he's absent. He is there. Feel the warm embrace of the Father right now, wrapping his arms around you. Sense his presence, grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Sense his presence in your life. Sense his work in your life this morning. He is at work. Second thing he says, verse 16. Therefore, I'm jealous for you. And the nations have gone too far. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. People are downcast. They've stopped the work because it, it just didn't look like it was going to be worth continuing the work. The people are in despair. The good old days are gone, and now it's just blah. But God says, this work is going to happen. My house will be rebuilt. My presence is coming back to my people. The measuring line is, I think of a chalk line. It's just a, it's a craftsman's tool. Every inch of Jerusalem, every inch of Zion, the Temple Mount, carefully laid out according to God's design. Not one inch off anywhere. Because God knows what he is doing. Or sometimes we... We find ourselves in these uncomfortable places in life and we think God doesn't know what he's doing. Can God not see? Why would God bring this into my life? How long, oh Lord, are you going to withhold mercy from me? What's the name of that book, Jeremy? Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Sarah and I are doing a study. Jeremy uh, gave me this book. It's so wonderful. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a book on lament. Listen to me. God is big enough to handle your questions. Some of you might think it's disrespectful to ask God why this, why that, how long, but it's not disrespectful. Did you know there are 65 psalms of lament in our Bible? 65, that's almost half of the psalms are psalms of frustration, psalms of hurt, psalms of pain, psalms of suffering, asking God why. It's okay to ask why sometimes. Not out of a selfish motive, but we ask. We bring our frustrations, our petitions to God out of faith. We know he can do something. We know he has the answer. So, of course, God's big enough to handle your questions. He's not the angry father that's going to give you the backhand of fellowship. <laughs> no, he's understanding. He's gentle. Some of you didn't have a good dad growing up. Listen, your heavenly father is a good, good father. He can handle 
what you're wrestling with. In fact, he delights when we bring our issues and we bring our problems to him like any good father would delight in their children coming to them for help. Lift up your eyes is what we call this book because that's what God wants his people to do. Gotta hurry. Verse 17, the last of, of three statements the Lord of hosts encourages his people with. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Notice again, just keep showing up four times there in that one verse. Because this is what God continuously does throughout the lifetime of his people. Right? We do good for a week. We're close to God. But don't we all know, if you've been a Christian for longer than five years, you know there are what we call dry spells. There are times when you just don't sense the presence of the Lord. There are times when you feel alone as a Christian. You're never alone, but there are times we feel like it. And again, and again, and again. And that's why the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Again and again and again, the Lord comforts. The Lord comes and he is the, the spring in the wilderness. He's the, he's the river that begins to flow in the desert, refreshing us, building us up, bringing revival in our hearts. If you're in a dry spell this morning, man, pray for Jesus Christ, the spring, to show up and refresh you. Because this is what God does over and over and over and over again in our lives. He comforts and he builds up. And can't you just see his people, his dehydrated desert people beginning to come to life as God is speaking to them saying, you're mine, I'm jealous for you. This temple is gonna get built. I am gonna be with you in your life. My presence is gonna be with you in the midst of you. These are his promises for his Old Testament people 2,500 years ago, and they're his promises for us today as well. Look at verse 18, second of eight visions. This is the shortest vision out of all of these eight visions, which is why we're throwing it into the end here. And I lifted my eyes. You're going to see, I lifted my eyes or God commanding his people to lift up your eyes. You're going to see it a half a dozen times as we walk through Zechariah. That's why we named this book what we did. If you're in this room this morning, please understand. Of course, when we're looking, that's why we're told to walk by faith, not by sight. Anytime we're looking around us, discouragement is going to be rampant. It's so easy to fall into despair in the world in which we live, which is why we don't look out this way. We don't look laterally. We look up. We look up to the Lord to see what he is doing in the world. And that's where joy and that's where hope uh, spring up within us as we look to our Father. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. Ryan got me a, a Viking drinking horn for my birthday. I almost, I should have brought it today. It would have been awesome to have this horn, right, that you put your sweet tea or your water in. <laughs> Skull, yeah. But here, the second vision, he sees four horns. 
And the horn is just full of imagery. Right? And we know biblically, we know even here in the test it's talking about the force, the power of nations. You can see that in verse, at the end of verse 21. And that's what horns represent, right? They get it from the animal kingdom. Anytime you see uh, two bucks meet up in the woods, right, what do they do? They lock horns to see which uh, buck has the most power, which buck's going to be the, the top buck, right? They, they lock their horns. All animals with horns do this as a test of strength. So when we see horns in Scripture, what we're seeing is the power and the strength specifically of, it can be used to speak of individuals, right? But almost 90% of the time we see horns in Scripture, it's talking about the power of nations, of a group of people, a community of people. And now a lot of people want to take, well, there's four of them. So they try to figure out which nation, which four nations. And most people go back to Daniel because there's that, that tower, you know, the clay feet and the bronze and up, up to the, the gold head. And we know what nations Daniel is talking about. But two of those nations hadn't even showed up on the scene and aren't going to show up. Greece and Rome, the top two areas, that's a couple hundred years after this. So that's not a good place to go. Rather, instead of trying to figure out nations that have put themselves against and scattered and done harm to Jerusalem, right? Because there's been a lot of them. We know Assyria in 722 destroyed the northern kingdom. We know Babylon came in and destroyed the southern kingdom. We know Persia came in and destroyed Babylon. But even further back in history, there was the Philistia, the Philistines, right? They, for almost 150 years, they tormented and oppressed God's people. There is... Uh, Ammon, there's Edom, there's a lot of different nations. So instead of trying to figure out which four nations is being talked about here, it's good to see four as the totality of the power of the nations, which is what four represents throughout Scripture. Uh, Daniel read about the, uh, the four living creatures in Revelation where the 24 elders are surrounded the throne and worshiping the Lord Jesus. Uh, there's the four corners, the four angels, Four shows up throughout Scripture, always meaning totality. So what we see here is I lifted up my eyes and I saw the totality of the power of the nations that have done harm to Israel. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? Again, I love the humility of Zechariah. And ushers, if you will come and begin to pass out the elements because we do want to participate in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning as we end with the powerful meaning of this vision. God is good to us. We can participate in His work. If you are not a Christian, you should not participate because you're only adding destruction to yourself if you eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a light manner. The Bible tells us that, but for those of you who have been saved by this blood and this perfect life of Jesus Christ, it is a celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will get to participate in forever. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and Jerusalem. Now, northern kingdom's never coming back, but God's people are already back in Judah. Not just Jerusalem, but all the cities surrounding Jerusalem that belong to God's people. There are nations that in their power, they've scattered God's people. 
Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I love this. Some of your Bibles will say blacksmith, but it's not just a blacksmith. This word is used throughout Scripture. Uh, It's used in Exodus of jewelry engravers. It's used in Exodus also for artisans for the temple furnishings, the ones who built the temple furnishings. It's used for metal workers in Deuteronomy. It's used for carpenters, which we know who the great carpenter is, amen? It's used for carpenters in 2 Kings. It's used for stonemasons in 2 Samuel. What's the common denominator in all these jobs? These are common jobs. These are blue-collar jobs. Four craftsmen showed up. It doesn't say four intellectual elites will show up. Right? If you can't do, teach. Right? That's the old statement. You got all these guys that are Ivy League colleges. (laughs) Well, you see, there's a spectrum when it comes to gender. (laughs) So smart. They've never done anything, but they're so smart. This is not the intellectual. This is not the kings and queens. This is not royalty, political prowess. Those are the things that are leading the nations. God doesn't use what's leading the nations to undo the nations. No, he used craftsmen. He uses the common, made holy by God. Men and women like you and I that get full of God's word. We are the ones he uses to hammer and beat into shape the nations. Do not forget salt and light. It's who we are. It's who God has made us. He uses the normal, the common to bring the power of the nations low. This is who we are as God's people, his church, living in 2024, 2,500 years after that. Still, he uses the common to bring the high low. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? Zechariah just has no answers, but God does. He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. We couldn't even, God's people couldn't even raise their head. They were so downtrodden, so beaten down, such full of despair. They couldn't lift their heads. So that no one raised their head. And these have come, these craftsmen have come to terrify the nations. Satan can't handle what's happening here this morning. He and his demons tremble at the fact of of God's empowered people being God's empowered people in the world. But it is who God has made us. And no nation, no matter how powerful, cannot stand against the triumphant, marching people of God led by Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior. Right? So often we have our heads down because the world says, oh, you guys don't know any, you guys don't belong in the public square anymore. Just go back and, and worship that ancient religion of yours. We'll take care of everything. But that's not the way God says things are going to shake out. It is God's people who are going by God's grace, by God's design, by God's sovereign will 
that are going to bring the power of the nations, that are going to break the horns, bring the power of the nations. Hey, no, we don't need three bathrooms, just two, male and female. Duh. Right? It is the word of God through his people that break the power of the horns of the nations. We have come to terrify them cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. You want to lock horns with God? You're going to lose. Amen? This is our God. This is who he is. And this is what God promises. Return to me, and I will return to you. And my presence is going to be with you and I'm not going to leave you the way you are. But I am going to build you up. Just like he's building up the city. Just like that temple is going to be built. God's presence is going to be there. But our best days are not behind. Our best days in the presence of Jesus Christ are ahead. This is what God says to his people. Amen.